cliffcentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And uh, Ramon is present. How are you doing? Sounding a bit gruff there. Yeah, I, know, I, had a, I had a long weekend. It's, it's, if you're hearing this, we're, we're recording on the first day after Easter. I was wondering, is that not Shelley Garland's voice? That... <laughs> oh my God. I'm not Shelley Garland. <laughs> Neither how am many, I. How many but, times must I tell but, people? But you know, they just can't let it go. They, they, they cannot let some random white male have his, uh, his privacy somewhere. Because, you know, when you show the uh, Huffington Post publishers stuff, according to ideology, instead of thinking, um, then instead of going, oh, maybe they shouldn't do that. Maybe they should look at the content before publishing it. Even if we agree with the content, maybe they should check like facts. For example, 90% of land is owned by whites, which even Nahama Brody's very biased Africa check um, says is false. Um, they, 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 they don't go, that's all the problem. No, no, the problem is that we don't know the name of the guy who wrote this, and so we're going to, like, say that it was Jonathan and Ramon. That's, re- that would, that's what the real problem is here. Yeah, based on no evidence whatsoever. Just because we exposed the thing doesn't mean we, we were participants in it. I knew about it after it was published, like the day it was published. Yeah. Someone sent me the details. I said, ah, I wrote this. Let's see how far it goes. And it went a lot further than <laughs> any yeah. of us expected. And, and, and the reality is, is I think, uh, if, if they're a little bit introspective and, and hopefully, uh, the, certainly outwardly, that's not happening, but I- inwardly, um, fine, you, you get trolled, you publish something that you shouldn't have published. Okay, mistakes happen. That point's been made. Arvo's made that point in his article. But when you double down and you go, no, no, we know you're going crazy about this thing we've published. We are perfectly happy with it. We stand by it fully. And that was when someone else had already started questioning the validity of the author. Right. And, and then especially if you label all criticisms of the piece as just being from the alt-right and people not understanding standard feminist theory. Now, I don't know about you, Jonathan. I've read standard feminist theory. I haven't seen one paper that argued against uh, white men voting. No, it's not pretty standard feminist theory. Well, because it would be laughed out of the uh, classroom, I suppose. As as HuffPost should have done when they received this, but they didn't laugh. They published it. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, behind us now. Um, obviously, there are the usual haters that uh, can't cope with the fact that uh, their worldview might not be 100% spot on and also can't cope with the fact that this show is uh, – growing in leaps and bounds is uh, taking away the audience of some of that supposed mainstream media. Yeah, mainstream media, which is all left. Um, and uh, I mean, it's, these are, listen, these are the same people that, that made Chris Hart lose his job over a tweet that tried to get to Gareth Cliff that destroyed the lives and livelihoods of lots of people last year, all based on fake news. And then they are the victims now when they're, Credibility is, is in disrepute. I got one word and it starts with F, but it's a family podcast. <laughs> sure, a family podcast. Well, um, let's get on to the guest for today, which has nothing to do with any of this. It's uh, someone from the environmental and science background. Our guest today is Dr. Patrick Moore. He's the co-founder of Greenpeace. He's an author of several books on the environment, and he's also a consultant to several environmental concerns. 
He's authored two of those books, including Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, The Making of a Sensible Environmentalist. And he holds a BSc Honours in Forest Biology and a PhD in Ecology from the University of British Columbia. Patrick, thanks so much for coming on to the show. Sorry, Dr. Moore, how are you today? I'm very well, thanks, even though it is a bit of a dreary day here on the east coast of Vancouver Island in Canada. Yeah, I can imagine. It does does rain like 300 days out of 365, if I'm not mistaken. Well, you'd think so sometimes, but really there's <laughs> a fair bit of sunshine here too. All right. Not too, well, sunshine in Canada, it's always a good thing, I'm sure. It is. It's beautiful here when the sun shines. Right. So, I mean, obviously you've got an extensive background in the environmental uh, sort of sector, industry, I don't know what movement. to – Movement, yeah. Um, can we go a little bit back to the beginning? We will link the Prager University videos you did onto the show notes for, for this podcast. But um, if we can perhaps just go back to you sort of co-founding Greenpeace and, and, and that whole movement and, and what the intention was and how it kind of became bastardized, for want of a better word, over time. Well, it was a very interesting time, the mid-1960s. The hippie era was well underway. The beat era was in the past. And it was the height of the Cold War and the height of the Vietnam War and the threat of all-out nuclear war and the emerging consciousness of the environment. So this was a new thing. I mean, war had been around forever and peace uh, was a, a big movement going way back. But the idea of the environmental movement was just taking shape. So what Greenpeace represented, and I was doing my Ph.D. in ecology quite appropriately at the time. In fact, a word that had not yet been popularized. The general public did not know what the word ecology was. It was an obscure science in biology. Mm-hmm. But So I was doing this Ph.D. and became radicalized because of the Vietnam War and the threat of nuclear war. And... I joined this little group in a church basement in Vancouver, which at that time was called the Don't Make a Wave Committee, and we became Greenpeace. And I sailed on the first voyage of Greenpeace to protest U.S. hydrogen bomb testing in Alaska, which turned out to be a victorious uh, movement against those tests. It was President Nixon who canceled the hydrogen bomb tests in Alaska. And this was really the, the cusp of the end of the arms race and the beginning of disarmament between the United States and then Soviet Union. And so we were right there on the front lines, kind of the tip of a spear, uh, trying to do something. And, and we realized that you can't just sit in a chair and complain. You have to get up and do something if you want to affect change. And that's really the story of how, of how Greenpeace began. So, but yeah, but the context is quite important. So when you speak about the hippie era and the anti-war movement uh, at the time, was this, was Greenpeace solely for the environment or was there a much broader, bigger message behind it? Well, the, the, the name Greenpeace was kind of magic because it synthesizes both the environment and the human aspects. And to me, that was really important. I mean, one of the reasons you'll see in my video why I left Greenpeace uh, is because by the time I left 15 years later, Greenpeace had kind of lost the peace part, and now it was just only the green part, and human beings were being characterized as the enemies of nature, the enemies of the earth, 
as if the human species was not part of nature and was apart from nature. And for me, this is like I was brought up agnostic. I'm not a religious person. And I'm actually agnostic politically as well. I see good ideas in many of the different political philosophies, and I see some mistakes in many of them as well. And the same thing uh, with religion. Uh, I mean, I, if I had to be religious, I'd be a Buddhist, I suppose. But uh, on, on the whole, I, I don't really care for this idea of original sin. Uh, and the environmental movement made the mistake of falling into that trap. For some reason, human beings love an apocalypse scenario. And it's because they're afraid of dying, I think. So they confuse their own individual death with the death of the planet. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe they think they're so important that if they die, that means the planet will die back in their mind somewhere. But for whatever reason, the idea that we are the only evil species on Earth is now a central core of the environmental movement's political philosophy. And it's so ridiculously stupid, just like it is in Christianity, that humans are the only evil things and all the other animals and plants are benign. Whereas ecology should be recognizing that this idea of original sin is it's like a fairy tale. I mean, we, we, we are a species. We have good in us. We have bad in us. And if you want to say that about a lion that kills another animal, uh, you can say it. I mean, we have some unique bad characteristics like genocide. It's not really that common in the animal kingdom. And there certainly aren't a lot of plants which practice it. Uh, so we, we should, we have to recognize that we are different from the other species. And, and you could use the word unique to describe our intellectual capacity, which is un unprecedented. So in a way, we are something completely new and different. But just to say that we're the, that we're the evil species and the enemy of nature is like, uh, I, I, just, I just think it's a, a form of self-loathing that I just not go in there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you, you mention um, that humans constantly want to believe that we're going to be wiped out by something. And I do want to certainly get into the climate change discussion with you. Um, but be before we go there, so Greenpeace evolves into this movement you've described. And, and, and did you just leave? Was there anything specific that led to that? Uh, what was the, the sort of the, the, the final nail in the coffin? Well, just going back a little bit, at first we started basically as an anti-war group. Uh, even though we called ourselves green, we also saw all of nuclear war as very destructive from an environmental perspective. So that's how we linked those together at the beginning. But then uh, after we campaigned against the U.S. and the French atmospheric nuclear testing in 72, 73, we had this guy come to us, Dr. Paul Spahn, who said, you guys are the only ones who know how to go out in boats and we've got to save the whales. And like a couple of us, Bob Hunter and I in particular, went, yes, let's broaden our campaigns out into something that has really directly to do with ecology and the environment. And that is the threat of the extinction of the whales by the factory whaling fleets all around the world, particularly Russia and uh, Japan, but others too. And so we took to the high seas to save the whales. And this was what really made us famous. And so that kind of rounded it out. On the one hand, we were holding out the, the threat of 
annihilation in a nuclear war. <clears throat> On the other hand, we were holding out the hope of saving the nature and the species. So uh, that, that, that was very wonderful. Uh, and we had a tremendous spirit all through those years. It wasn't until the, mid, the early 80s, into the 80s, when we started taking on the issue of toxics. Uh, every river in Europe was dead. Uh, the United States and Canada had passed legislation on clean air and water by this time, so things were improving on this side of the planet. But there was really a lot of work to do. And uh, by the mid-80s, we had really been effective in getting rules in Europe in particular. I mean, Asia is still a mess in many countries, Indonesia, China, and India. Most of their rivers are not doing all that well, and, and they need to, to, to clean it up. And they will as they get wealthier. But uh, what happened around the mid-80s is I found myself, we, we, Greenpeace International was created in 1979, so eight years after the beginning of the organization, we coalesced into this international organization with offices in countries in Europe, and Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, and it just spread from there to today where there's probably 35 countries with Greenpeace offices in them. But at that time, I found myself one of five international directors with David McTaggart as chairman. None of the other five had any formal science education. I had a BSc in science honors in biology and a PhD in ecology, and I had studied nuclear physics and I'd studied chemistry and all these subjects in depth all through my time with Greenpeace as well after I got my PhD in ecology. And my fellow directors decided that chlorine should be nicknamed the devil's element and should be banned from the face of the earth, basically. Well, banned for all human uses. Yeah, and, which is ridiculous. And it, it, well, it's ridiculous, but you have to remember that DDT dioxins and uh, one other bad one, uh, oh, I can't remember, with uh, PCBs. Yeah, those are all those are all chlorinated hydrocarbons, and they all had very good uses. And of course, DDT was so ne negatively vilified that about thirty to fifty million people died of malaria unnecessarily because there was a broadcast ban on DDT almost worldwide, and they confused the agricultural with the medical use of DDT. The agricultural use was as an insecticide over huge areas of farmland. It wasn't such a bad idea to stop doing that and to find more specific chemicals to deal with insect pests. But to ban it for the control of malaria was a huge error in the movement. Anyways, this was in the middle of that. And so then they decided, well, chlorine's the common denominator in all of these toxic chemicals, so let's just ban chlorine worldwide. And, you know, I knew, for example, that chlorine was actually one of the elements in the periodic table. Uh, it's yes. one of the building blocks of the universe. It is the 11th most common element in the Earth's crust. And it is what salt is made with. All the salt, most of the salt in the ocean is sodium chloride. And That's, the salt we eat with food yes. is sodium chloride. And, and we would not be and, able to survive without it. Yes, exactly. It's an essential nutrient. And, and in addition to that, the addition of chlorine to drinking water and pools and spas uh, is one of, is, is actually the biggest advance in the history of public health. And on top of that, 
the majority of our synthetic pharmaceuticals are made with chlorine chemistry. And so Greenpeace still has, and, and developed then, this idea that there should be a world with no toxics. The, under your kitchen sink, you know, that idea that nothing under your kitchen sink should be toxic. Well, how do you disinfect things like hospitals? You, you disinfect them with toxic substances that kill bacteria, and chlorine is the most important one. Hmm. When I was a kid, iodine was the most important thing in the medicine chest because it, it is an antiseptic and can kill germs that are getting into a cut. So you put it on your cut. And today we have other medicines for that, but the whole thing, fluorine, chlorine, bromine, and iodine, hmm. the halogens are very important for many uh, positive uses. Absolutely. And well, these guys wanted to ban chlorine worldwide, so they called chlorine the devil's element, and they called PVC, which is polyvinyl chloride, otherwise known as just vinyl. They called that the poison plastic because it's made with salt and natural gas. The hydrogen from natural gas and the chlorine from sodium chloride salt is is what PVC is made with. And it's one of the most incredibly non-toxic, versatile, cost-effective and environmentally friendly materials there is, and yet they have vilified it as a poison. And so yeah, our credit cards are made out of vinyl. All our records were made out of vinyl when we were young. And uh, and so many things, uh, you know, the little swimming kiddie pools that, and, and toy beach balls. And I mean, there's a billion things. Uh, and, and actually, most of the pipe in the world is now made out of vinyl for gas and water and sewer and electrical conduit. And the insulation on most wires is made out of PVC because it's the best material for that purpose. And so even though I had already decided I wanted to work myself out of Greenpeace four years before I did, in 1982, I attended an international conference of environmentalists in Nairobi, which was organized because the United Nations Environment Program had been headquartered there. And so 10 years after the Stockholm Conference on the Environment, which I also attended in 1972, where we got a vote against French atmospheric nuclear testing by the world community, uh, in 82, we went and had this meeting in Nairobi. And there, the first time, I heard the term sustainable development, now usually called sustainability. And it's a misused term on both sides of the aisle. But actually, it's a very important term because it means thinking ahead about the consequences of what you're doing today. Mm. And, and, and it's, it is, it, it's like, it, it's a, basically adopting the Japanese approach and the Chinese too. The Oriental cultures have more like a 20 to 100 year horizon of thinking about what they're doing, whereas we're like six months out most of the time, if that. And so it's a, it's a really important concept, and I heard it there first, and that was made me realize that environmentalism was just a narrow aspect of the idea of incorporating environmental principles into the social and economic fabric of everyday life and politics. You can't just say, oh, we'll just do environment now. We're going to forget about the people and the economy and, the, and, and human rights. We're just going to forget about that. And that's what the environmental movement is. It's still its main mistake is that it, it says, okay, we'll just stop using fossil fuels because they're a threat to the climate and be damned what happens to the humans as a result because we can just build windmills and solar panels and everything will be fine. It's completely stupid. I mean, some of the things that are being proposed are so stupid 
that it's amazing that an intelligent species can actually go in these directions without taking into account what the consequences are going to be. Anyways, that's why I left Greenpeace. And, I, and, and ever since I left Greenpeace, and now it's 30 years ago, well, actually a little bit more, since I left Greenpeace, they have adopted position after position, which is just as dumb as their anti-chlorine position. Their campaign against forestry, which is the most renewable and sustainable industry that we have to provide us with things we use, energy and wood. And, I mean, wood is still the largest source of renewable energy in the world by far. The wind and solar don't have a candle to it. And wood is obviously the most important renewable material resource we have mm. for building with and making furniture and all the things that are made out of wood and the paper. So, so sorry, they, they just it's just gone so completely wonky. They're against nuclear energy. I know the situation in South Africa well as I toured there in support of the Pebble Bed nuclear reactor program, which Germany gave you uh, back in, in 2000 when Schroeder and the Greens voted to, to eliminate all nuclear energy research, never mind shutting down the nuclear plants. All their research was shut down in 2000 or 2002, and, uh, and you, got, you were the beneficiary of that, which unfortunately petered out uh, in South Africa, and I know that Greenpeace is down there campaigning against the idea for you to build new nuclear plants, and thankfully I hear you have some frackable gas down there. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe some oil too i don't know but that is that is good news for for south africa cuz all you had really was coal and that's fine i mean it, it served you well but it's good to have a mix and and nuclear is great because it's 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 super clean and it is the energy of the future and yet you've got still got this movement against it which is completely irrational and uh, i'll never forget the headline on cnn during the fukushima Incident. I call it an incident rather than a crisis. The crisis was the tsunami, which had, you know, but, but CNN had a, a headline during the middle of the Fukushima affair, which said, nuclear crisis deepens as bodies wash ashore. <laughs> as if the nuclear crisis had caused that. that. That is burned in my brain. I saw it written on the screen. And... And I realized, I think they're conflating things here. <laughs> they're trying to make it seem as though the, the Fukushima caused the tsunami, and it was the other way around. So, Patrick, and, uh, sorry, if I may, let's talk about the... the, 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 the I know, so... Oh, no, 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 please. We're enjoying it. Yeah, we quite enjoy it. I mean, unfortunately, in South Africa, nuclear is not that easy an option because it's it's part of a, a massive corruption scheme. Yeah, it's politicized for, for political gain more than actually giving energy. Um, we are in favor of nuclear as a, as a, as a concept, in, as a concept and in principle. But the nuclear deal that we signed with Russia that we haven't signed but have signed, no one really knows, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a corrupt deal to enrich a very small sector of the political class, I'm afraid to say. But nevertheless, let's talk about the uh, green movement in general these days. To me, there's almost a sense of primitivism about it. It's almost as if capitalism is the enemy, uh, technological progress is the enemy. We need to go back to a more simpler time when we were so-called one with nature. Uh, I don't know when that was, 10,000 years ago maybe. Um, 
Is that the sense? What sense do you get from the current environmental movement? Well, yes, there is this uh, fairy tale, uh, and it's it's sort of like going back to the Garden of Eden, I suppose, in in Christian lore. Uh, they they forget that it was only a hundred years ago when the average age of a human being was thirty five, uh, and you had to live with your animals. Uh, you put the animals on the main floor and you slept above so that the warmth from the animals would help heat your your, your hovel, uh, at least in the colder climates. In the warmer climates uh, where humans evolved, people in all this climate change discussion, people don't realize that we are actually a tropical species. You could Humans could not live in South Africa if it were not for fire, shelter, and clothing. And so humans basically uh, evolved at the equator uh, where it is always warm and it never even gets close to freezing uh, because if, if, if a human being in the shade dies of hypothermia at 20 Celsius, uh, our, our insides are 36. Yeah. Uh, and we, we, we are... If, if unless we have clothing and fire and shelter, we would be confined to a narrow band of the deep tropics. And yet they're afraid, like people think Canada is getting too hot. Uh, <laughs> and the Arctic, the Arctic is melting, right? Well, let the bloody Arctic melt. It used to be covered in forests not that long ago in geological time. The whole of Canada's Arctic islands were subtropical forests with giant camels roaming around in them. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, it, it, it isn't necessary to have a climate which presents a terrible hardship of six months of frozen snow and ice on the ground. That, that is not necessarily a good thing. And people think that they say we'll never adjust. We could never adapt to a warmer climate. I mean, why do people fly south in the winter from all of the northern climates? And, and and when they have a chance to get away from their job. Yeah, well, Cape Town is full of Germans. Yeah, exactly. And there's a good reason for that, because you have such a nice benign climate compared to Germany. Uh, and, and 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 there's there's nicer climates, like the highlands all through the tropics, the highlands, the, what, what you call the, the, the cities of eternal spring, like Quito in, in South America and, and you know, if you're in the tropics and you're at 5,000 foot altitude, you basically have a beautiful, benign 75 degree Fahrenheit, 23, 24, 25 degree Celsius climate the whole year round. Mm. Uh, and comfortable humidity. Exactly. And people like that uh, because it, it suits them. It's, it's suitable for the, our biology to be in that climate. And I was just up on Baffin Island uh, at Iqaluit. Uh, in in Canada, where just the other day it was minus 23 Celsius in the morning there, uh, and it's already springtime. Uh, but they're not going to see spring weather until June, and then it will freeze over again in September. And I guess if you, you know, some people get to be familiar with that. They have to wear heavy clothing every day, except for a few days in the summer, which is about a month long. And in, and yet the, the people are afraid of the climate changing. And 
as you know, this year actually we've had one of the coldest winters in recent history in Canada since the '60s. Uh, when there were, you know, when I was a child, we had much colder winters than we've had through the '80s, '90s, and into the 2000s. But this year, there was a cold winter all across North America, and I understand Europe was pretty cold too. And we're going into a grand solar minimum, and many people who are actually studying uh, the science of these things rather than the propaganda are quite certain that we are going into a cooling period in the next 20 to 60 years, over the next 20 to 60 years, but that it's beginning now because the sunspots have dried up and we know about the, the solar minimums that occurred in the past, which were associated with what's called little ice ages. They weren't ice ages, but they were colder times when the snow lasted for longer in the winter and the summers weren't as warm. So we'll see. But uh, it, it, one thing I know is I can't even predict who's going to win a horse race, never mind what the climate's going to do in 20 years. Yeah. And I mean, can, there might, can, you go, go ahead. can you go into that a, a bit more in terms of uh, – because I think people understand in, it, what they're told in terms of the climate and in terms of Earth – they understand Earth as these are the continents, this is where the oceans are, these are the islands that are above sea level or just, um, these are the polar ice caps, these are very important. And this NASA picture from the 70s is, uh, and the one from 2010, you know, these juxtaposed next to each other should terrify you. Um, you can you give us some background in terms of the history of the Earth and and all of these sort of warm, cold and Periods, because you know we we sort of what thirteen is it thirteen billion years since the the, the Earth came about, um, and obviously we haven't been here for that long, but we've been here for a decent period of time as well, uh, and all, through all of those thirteen billion years and the few hundred thousand that humans, Neanderthals, and our ancestors came about, um, there's been a n- number of different uh, sort of terraformer on the earth, climate informing that, uh, where the oceans have been, uh, where the land has been, etc. Yes, well, the, the, the universe uh, is expected to be somewhere between 14 and 16 billion years old from when the Big Bang uh, is supposed to have happened. And within That's 10%. All, <laughs> all rather real theoretical. But the earth itself is 4.6 billion years old. Uh, our sun is a young star uh, compared to the age of the universe. It formed, uh, and I, I, I still think most of this is a mystery, but we do know that it formed at that time. Uh, and then the planets coalesced around it, and some of them are made of rocks like ours, and some of them are made of gas, like the gas planets of, of, of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. But... Uh, the climate has never stopped changing on Earth. Sometimes it changes more rapidly than other times, but it never stops changing. And you have to look at it as like 4.5 billion years is a long time. Let's just come forward a billion years. That is about when life began, 3.5 billion years ago. And for the first 3 billion years of life, it was all microscopic, unicellular, and confined to the sea, perhaps some in lakes, but not on the land. The land was barren for the first 
three billion years, approximately. Then life came on the land about half a billion years ago. We have records that are reasonable about many aspects of what the earth was like and what species were here, especially when species evolved hard parts like shells and bones, which can be fossilized. So long as all of the species were just gelatinous, little blips in the ocean, you don't get a lot of fossils. Mm. And the most important fossil records are in the Burgess Shale here in Canada, in the Rocky Mountains, and in some sites in China, where huge undersea mudslides happened. At the time of the Cambrian explosion, when modern life was emerging and larger organisms were evolving, tissue differentiation was the key to that in as, as species grew. And these mudslides preserved the soft parts of the animals. And that has given us a picture of the explosion that happened then. There's a, a great book by Stephen Jay Gould, Wonderful Life. It's named after the Jimmy Stewart Christmas movie. And it's a, just a spectacular history of life on Earth. And he, he, he's, he's passed on some years ago, but he was at New York University in New York and was just the most brilliant person in, in writing about natural history and evolutionary history. And since then, we have a pretty good record of the evolution of life. What we know is there are cycles, and then there are cycles on the cycles and cycles on those cycles. So it's, in a sense, it's, it's fractal, chaotic and fractal. But in another sense, there are patterns of cycles. One of these patterns are the ice ages. The, not, not the glaciations that we've been in during this ice age, but the, 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 the major ice ages. This is the first ice age for 300 million years that we're in now and have been locked in for the last two and a half million years in the northern hemisphere. Antarctic started freezing over in, in about 25 to 30 million years ago. Still very short time scale compared to the 500 million year history of modern life. Mm. And before that, that a, freezing happened, the, the sort of what we think of as the Arctic and, you know, North and South Pole was, was not frozen, no ice. No ice, no. The, uh, Antarctica was forested. Uh, it's actually uh, an archipelago. The, 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 there's the, 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 the land where land. we see now this massive ice sheet. A mm. lot of that would be ocean. But there is a lot of land there, whereas in the Arctic, the, the, except for the Canadian Arctic islands, especially on the Russian side, there's virtually no land. It's virtually all sea. So the, the, the southern hemisphere and the northern hemisphere are polar opposites, not just in name, but in, in reality, in that the southern hemisphere has a small amount of land and mostly ocean, especially at, towards the pole, whereas the Arctic has mostly land, except towards the pole, it has ocean. So they're, they're opposite that way. And because the sun heats the land more than it does the ocean, I mean, the land gets hotter than the ocean does, the northern hemisphere did not freeze over as quickly as the southern hemisphere did. But the truth of the matter is we are at the tail end of a 50 million year cooling period, which began at the peak of what's called the Eocene thermal optimum or maximum. 50 million years ago, 15 million years after 
the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, the Earth was still in a heating period that had started way, way back, really coming out of the ice age before this one, which was 300 million years ago. And in between 300 million years ago and now, the Earth was always warmer than it is today. And the dinosaurs flourished during that period. Life flourished on the Earth, and it was much greener than it is today. A larger percentage of the Earth was covered in forests and green plants, and, of course, the animals that go along with it. Whereas today, large parts of the Earth are a, just a, a frozen ball of ice most of the year or part of the year. And the truth is, ice is the enemy of life. If you go from the tropics, you, you start in the tropics and move towards the pole, say where it come, you guys are actually in the southern hemisphere. That's so cool. Um, <laughs> but in either hemisphere, the closer you get to the pole, the less species there are. Why? Ice. So, you know, same, same thing yeah. you say, I say to people. The United States has 350 million people in it. Canada has 35 million, 10% the population of the United States, even though Canada is larger geographically. Why is there so few people in Canada? Only one word, cold. That is why. Oh, not, not, not a hatred of maple syrup. Pardon? Not, not a and hatred maple, of maple syrup. You know, we could make maple syrup on the Arctic islands if they were covered in maple trees. <laughs> but and, and it's true. There are trade-offs here. And we don't want the world climate to change overnight into something completely different than it is now. Or species would have trouble figuring out how to move that fast. But when you think about it, one of the cycles that has occurred is within this ice age of two and a half million years, there have been at least 25 glacial periods, like the one we just came out of. And when I say just, I mean 12,000 years ago. That was the reason that agriculture could begin on the Earth, because the, the, the human species has lived through this ice age. We have survived through it because we have fire, and we've even survived through it in cold climates. Yeah. Colder than today. So, Patrick, let's... Yeah. Right. I mean, we we I mean, we don't know the science behind the history of of the ice ages and and the cooling and warming periods, but we do know that they exist to a large degree. So, in the present day, you have the um, what do you call it? The hypothesis that carbon causes global warming, and you have uh, intergovernmental. Uh, Agencies like the UN, the IPCC, saying this is actually the case. So, what is your view on carbon? Because there's a big difference between climate change and pollution. Somehow, if you are a climate change skeptic, you like pollution. Those are two separate things entirely. But nevertheless, what is your view on, on carbon as the cause of warming? Well, first, for some reason, we have shorthanded carbon dioxide into carbon. Uh, carbon is actually a black substance called soot. It's also what graphite is pure carbon. The lead in your pencil is pure carbon. And diamonds, which you know about in South Africa, are also pure carbon. Carbon as an element exists in these three main states, which are very different from each other. It has to do with the way they are crystal, their crystalline structure. That's how each carbon atom is connected to the other one. 
But carbon dioxide is a different kettle of fish. It would be like calling water hydrogen, right? It's actually hydrogen yeah, dioxide. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Right? You're not going to call water hydrogen, or you're not going to call water oxygen. It's hydrogen dioxide. In the sorry, it's dihydrogen oxide. Yeah, and just to to inter, interject, it's uh, important to note that uh, all human beings, as well as anything living, is a carbon-based life form. Precisely. So this is the great irony. Uh, it's a, it's it's bigger than an irony, but that's the best word in the English language to describe it. I believe. Uh, is that on the one hand, carbon dioxide is the basis of all life on Earth because that's where the carbon comes from that the plants make themselves out of. So the two most important molecules for life are carbon dioxide and water. If you take carbon dioxide and water plus photosynthesis and a bunch of enzymes, you get sugar, glucose, fructose, sucrose. Those sugars are the basis of the energy for all life on Earth, including our own, because we basically survive by eating the plants or the animals that have eaten the plants. So that is clear. Carbon dioxide is the basis of all life on Earth, and without it, actually below a certain level of it, life would die or would not have been possible in the first place. The carbon dioxide that is dissolved in the sea also came from the air. How did carbon dioxide get in the air? Through early volcanic eruptions when the earth was much hotter than it is today. And carbon and oxygen combined in order to make carbon dioxide, which is a gas like oxygen. But there was no oxygen in the atmosphere of the early world. It came from within the inside of the earth as carbon dioxide. So all the oxygen in the early world was attached to something else. The only reason there is any oxygen in the atmosphere today is because plants learned how to separate the carbon and the oxygen, turn the carbon into sugar, and put the oxygen in the air. That made it possible for oxygen-breathing species to exist instead of just carbon dioxide breathing species. And actually, all the higher plants also use oxygen as well as carbon dioxide. It's just that they make more oxygen than they use. Sorry. Yes, they make more oxygen than they use. Whereas they use more carbon dioxide. They don't make a lot of carbon dioxide either. They use more carbon dioxide than they use, than than they emit. And so... What you have is a situation where it's proven that CO2 is the most important substance for the production of life, and it's proven that we are at one of the lowest levels of CO2 in the history of life. See, we're at the tail end of not only a 50 million year cooling period, but a 150 million year CO2 decline from 2500 ppm to 150 million years ago to before we came along as low as 180 during the peak of the last glaciation and the two or three glaciations before it, we know from the Antarctic ice cores, which go back 800,000 years, 
In other words, they go back eight glaciations. We know that CO2 dropped down to as low as 180 parts per million, just 30 parts per million above the threshold for plant survival. We know that plants were stunted during that period worldwide. We also know that as the ice melted, coming out of the last glaciation between 20 and 10,000 years ago, that CO2 went back up to 260 and eventually 280 ppm before industrialization. Why did CO2 go down during the cold periods and up during the warm periods? Because the seas hold most of the CO2. Mm. There's about 45 times as much CO2 in the oceans as there is in the atmosphere today. Yeah, and Henry's when law, if I'm not mistaken. When the sea warms, it gives off gas. Just like I, the analogy I use is you take a cup, a glass of cold water out of the fridge and put it on the counter. As it warms up, all those little bubbles that form in the water are outgassing because warm water doesn't hold as much gas as cold water. So cold water holds more CO2 than warm water does, so that when the seas warm, as the climate warms, the seas warm and give off CO2. When the climate cools, the sea absorbs more CO2. So it's kind of breathing in and out during these glacial periods, which are 100,000 years in duration. Yeah. Okay, but we've we've got a you know the, the international panel on climate change, uh, the UN. We've got uh, meetings happening in Paris with uh, large um, you know countries signing agreements uh, and it being hailed as some great uh, achievement. Uh, and so, and, and at the same time, campaigns, uh, carbon taxes on uh, on on individuals and citizens of various countries, um, all of these things happening because people are going to say, well. Dr. Moore is just a climate science, uh, climate change denier. Um, the science is settled. Uh, 97% is the number that often gets thrown around of, 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 um, climate scientists agree. Um, and basically this is all just, um, either not true or, um, twisting of the facts. Yes. Well, let's start with the international intergovernmental panel on climate change. The problem with that body is it is completely conflicted by its own mandate. Their mandate is to study the human effect on the world's climate. Nothing else. They are not mandated to look at natural phenomena that other than human effects. So if they came to the conclusion that humans are not the main cause of climate change, or even if we were, that it wouldn't be catastrophic, it would actually be beneficial There'd be no reason for them to exist. So they are completely conflicted by their own mandate, for sure. When it comes to the 97%, even if that were true, which it is not, it's completely bogus. And a psychologist from New Zealand made, Australia, sorry, John Cook, made it up. It's a completely fabricated and bogus number. There are thousands of scientists who do not agree with the human-caused dangerous climate change scenario or narrative or whatever you want to call it. It's a story, yeah. and it is, has no basis in fact. But even if the 97% were true, it wouldn't matter, because consensus is a political term, not a scientific term. Consensus has no place in science. It doesn't matter. I'll tell you two reasons why. 
First, Galileo. One person realized that the Earth was not the center of the universe or the solar system and that the Earth went around the sun rather than vice versa. It looks like the sun goes around the Earth by where you're standing here, coming up every day and going around the other side, but it isn't true. And he was put under house arrest for the rest of his life for believing in that, even though he was only one person. Now I'll talk about Einstein. I could talk about every other individual who made the big breakthroughs in the history of science. Einstein, when he published his theory of relativity, 100 scientists authored a treatise against him, saying that he was wrong in his theory of relativity, which has since been proven correct by many experiments, bending light by gravity, for example. When Einstein heard that these 100 scientists had published this treatise, he said, oh, why 100? It would only require one to prove me wrong. <laughs> and this is why the 97% is BS. Because even if it were true, it wouldn't matter. So what we have here is a war of ideas, and you've got, you, you call it the Paris Agreement. What they agreed to do was nothing. They didn't agree to do anything. They committed to being non-committal. And not only that, they gave India and China a free pass till 2030 to do whatever they want, along with the rest of the developing countries, as they're called. I mean, China and India, China in particular, is a developed country now. It's not, an un, not a developing country. India is still got 300 million people with no electricity. And you can understand why they want to build some plants to give electricity to people, because it's one of the most essential elements of modern life. But, of course, we want to go back to the caves or something. You know, it's, I, I, that's what I, I said at one point when people started campaigning against fossil fuels. Said not only do we have to go back into the caves, but we can't even have a fire to cook our food and stay warm anymore. You know, it's like that silly. But the, 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 the Paris Agreement is dead anyways. It's dead on arrival. The, the G7 finance ministers failed to recognize it in their latest communique. The G20 failed to recognize it in their communique. It is over, finished. Nothing is going to happen except they're going to meet again. And I bet the, the meeting this year will be a lot smaller than the one last year. So, so there's, 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 there's no, you know, and, and when it comes to the carbon taxes, they don't prove anything. They just prove that, that, that it's politics and that it's a, mon a money grab, as if there aren't taxes on fossil fuels already, so, in, especially in, in the industrialized countries. Patrick, so, let's talk about, yeah. um, let's talk about the, the ideology of these sorts of people. So we had a guest on a few weeks ago called James Dillingpole. Uh, he wrote a, a great book called Watermelons, uh, and he says the green movement are just socialists in green clothing, essentially. Uh, they want more more government power, more centralized power, uh, hate capitalism, uh, hate trade, of course. Uh, do you think there's an underlying socialist ideology to the green movement, or are they, is it just a case, or it could be both, of course, but it could be just a case of hippies needing something to do? No, it's, a, it's, a, it's more serious than hippies needing something to do. Uh, in fact, uh, I characterize it as Greenpeace having been hijacked by the far left. 
at the time I was in there and when I was leaving. Uh, politicos took over the green movement, including Greenpeace and the others. And they're, they're, they're people who are spend their whole waking hours conniving at figuring out how to get control. And that's why they're characterized as wanting central control, because they want to be the ones in central control. And so they're power hungry and they are also fear mongers. And but, you know, going back to the climate and Paris and all of this and why all these heads of state agree, even the Canadian prime minister, the former Canadian prime minister, Stephen Harper, who is a conservative from the oil patch in Alberta, agreed with the G7 to phase out fossil fuels by 2100 in order to look good or I don't know. What is it that they're trying to look like? But whatever they're trying to look like, this is not the first time in history that the emperors have had no clothes, this whole climate change fakery. Okay, so let's and, let's assume they fail because it seems like you know, the only thing that the climate lobby is likely to do is uh, collect a lot of money. Uh, you know, through tax or or through grants for experiments which don't seem to be anything that will change the the reality. Uh, even if you talk about the Paris Agreement, I think uh, you know the, the in terms of dropping the temperature, uh, not allowing it to increase by more than two degrees or something like that. It, it's it's kind of neither here nor there. What realistically, even if um, they were right. And this is where my issue comes in is, as you were pointing out, if the earth warms, most places become warmer. Therefore, many places become more fertile. It is true that some places will go under the ocean, I'm sure. The Seychelles, for, an, for example, will perhaps not exist. Um, it's, it's, it's also possibly true that there will be areas, new areas of drought. But you would believe that as much as there might be areas of drought, there would be new areas of rainfall. Um, is that is that a fair way to look at it? And it should what we should be doing maybe be more in line with what the new reality is likely to be in whether it takes 100 years or 1,000 years? A warmer climate will almost certainly be a wetter climate. Uh, not necessarily in the places that are really wet now. It might not make much difference there. But it will make a difference. For example, uh, nine between five and nine thousand years ago, the Sahara Desert was green. It was people were grazing their animals there. There were lakes everywhere. We know that for sure. And it was also about one and a half to two degrees Celsius warmer then. So this whole thing of not wanting it to get two degrees warmer is total flimflam. There is absolutely no basis in saying that two degrees warmer would be negative. It would be totally, almost entirely positive if it was two degrees warmer on the average on the Earth. See, the thing is, when the Earth warms, it warms more towards the poles than it does towards the equator. The equator will hardly be affected. The equatorial regions will hardly be affected in terms of temperature. It may actually get cooler in the subtropical regions where it's actually the hottest. Most people don't realize that the hottest places on Earth are the subtropical deserts at about 30 degrees, between 20 and 30 degrees uh, north and south, like the Sahara. is not on the equator. It's well north of it. And the Kalahari is not on the equator. So if you look at the world's deserts, you see where they are. That's where it gets hottest. And where it gets coldest 
is actually where the, in, in the middle of Siberia, not at the North Pole, gets colder in Siberia because it's land rather than ocean. So people don't get that. But when the Earth warms, it warms exorbitantly more at the polar regions than it does at the tropics. So it, it, it's actually a very positive thing in that sense. The tropics aren't going to get way hotter, but the northern climes may get considerably warmer, which would be extremely positive for agriculture, for reducing energy consumption in terms of heating and, and even cooling uh, in some areas. If it, if it gets wetter, it will get cooler in those areas when it would be hotter now. So in overall, the, the funny thing is, is that global warming will in many places have a cooling effect if it becomes wetter because more water will be evaporating off the seas. People forget that the seas are such an important sort of thermostat in all of this and that they cover 72% of the world and they have way more heat in them and way more CO2 in them than the atmosphere does. So they, their effect is huge on the whole Earth system. Uh, we, we should not be afraid of the climate. It's a boogeyman that has been planted in our brains. There is nothing to fear except from extreme weather. But if you look at the actual records, this is where the, a big fault line between the IPCC's publications and the green movements and the polit politicians' hysteria. There's actually a decline in droughts, a decline in floods, a decline in hurricanes, and a decline in tornadoes, and a huge decline in property loss per GDP from extreme weather events because we have hardened our society into mm. being much more resilient. We build better buildings. We make buildings that are earthquake-proof. That earthquake in Japan hardly killed anybody from the earthquake itself. It was the tsunami that did all the damage. But the buildings all st stood up because they build their buildings to withstand the worst earthquake that could happen. And in the past, like a, a, the hurricane in Galveston, I think it was 1896, killed 10,000 people. Whereas yeah. it wasn't as big as some of the hurricanes that have happened in modern times. And 10,000 people don't die in hurricanes anymore. So, the, the, you know, except in the Philippines, which is still in like third world conditions for many people. So as we modernize and and build better infrastructure, there will be less and less damage from extreme weather events. At the same time, it is very clear, Roger, Roger Pilkey Jr. is a guy to go to on this. He studies the pattern of extreme weather events, you know, for the last hundred years. And it's very clear that they are going down as a result. We don't know why. It may be as a result of the warming. It may be for some other reason. But it actually makes sense that hurricanes would go down during warming, because the poles warm more than the equator, and hurricanes are caused by the difference in temperature between the, the, you know, be, between the northern and, and southern regions in the northern hemisphere. Yeah. Opposite in the south. And, well, and, and in a warming world, that difference will become uh, smaller rather than larger. Well, well uh, you know, I think a lot of people assume that the severe weather issues are a bigger problem because they just see it on the news more and they forget that news hasn't been 24 hours uh, forever and there haven't been reporters in every corner of the world and smartphones. So, uh, you know, there may have been uh, many, many hurricanes or, 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 or cyclones in the Philippines um, 
50 years ago, but you, you, if you were living in the middle of the United States, you probably never hear about it. Whereas today it may be headline news. Um, I just, uh, we've done quite a bit on the climate. Thanks so much for, for talking about it so in depth. I just wanted to quickly, we don't have too much time left, but I want to quickly discuss two, two issues briefly. Um, the, the one is fracking, which is very controversial in South Africa. So we've had a, an energy expert on the show. You, you mentioned our energy concerns in South Africa. Uh, as it happens, unfortunately, due to negative growth and, and our, our economy, economy and economic problems, um, we're actually producing more electricity than we need right now. So we had a problem at a point where our economy was growing and, and we, we couldn't produce enough. Um, we've just invested in two giant um, coal power plants, one of which is uh, partially online, the, the, the other one of which will come online in the next five to ten years, depending on how long they take to build it. Uh, however, the Obviously, there's the nuclear deal, which which may go ahead. That's very politicized and and, and looks like it's very corrupt. Um, if it happens, obviously, we'll end up with a nuclear power plant of sorts, um, which will give us even more power, which we may not need. Um, but the the prevailing opinion at the moment amongst all the experts here seems to be that the best way to get power in South Africa would be through gas uh, and specifically through fracking. Uh, and there's been obviously a lot of argument on on either side. Uh, I'm not sure if you know Ivo Vechter. We've had him on the show. He's quite a proponent for fracking. Um, and uh, what, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Because that's been done quite extensively, certainly in the states. Yes, the, the the point of fracking is it's not even slightly controversial. It's a perfectly suitable technology used to get the mother load of gas and oil out of the shale. That's where it was made. The, the conventional gas and oil that we have traditionally mined is stuff that has escaped from its origi or, or original uh, formation and moved upwards, uh, often then blocked by an impervious layer of clay. And so it's been not so deep. The, these shale deposits, of course, are a kilometer or two or even more down because they are ancient marine deposits, and the shale itself is mostly calcium carbonate, which is the shells of tiny uh, phytoplankton and zooplankton that sank to the bottom. But the organic part of that dead plankton is what the oil and gas is made from. Inside the, it was inside these little shells. And this is hundreds of millions worth of formation. Uh, fracking is simply a way of fracturing these shale de deposits so that the gas and oil comes out. And there's nothing controversial about it. It's, it's the same thing I say about GMOs, genetically modified uh, organisms. Which is the other at, thing at I wanted to ask you about. So let's, uh, we can put them together. At, That's perfect. At least with nuclear energy, there is radiation to be concerned with. It's, a, it, it's an issue, no doubt about it. It's totally overblown. In Fukushima, for example, no one was even injured by radiation, never mind killed at Fukushima, and the Radiation Effects Research Foundation, which is the peak body in the world on the relationship between radiation and impact on humans, says there will be no discernible health effect from Fukushima in the population. Yet 1,600 people died because of the evacuation, especially the intensive care ward that was moved into a gymnasium where there was no intensive care. And so 
even the even the UN recognize World Health Organization recognized these evacuations actually caused more death than if they'd left the people where they were. So so but at least there is radiation to be worried about with nuclear energy. With fracking in particular and GMOs in particular, there is no thing to worry about. There's nothing. It's it's a completely fabricated, made up story like climate change. Although with climate change, of course, there is climate change. It's just that we don't understand it as well as we would like to. But we know we know for certain that CO2 is not the enemy of life. It is the foundation of life. With fracking, we have modern technology. There's nothing. It's it's there's nothing uh, like secret about it. It's perfectly good technology. It works. It's been working for 60 years in the oil industry. It's only been adopted for natural gas recently. Why? Because there was enough natural gas that was easier to get at because natural gas does come to the surface if it can because it's lighter than everything else. So whereas oil seeps up, but it doesn't come up as easy as natural gas does. And yes, the three best forms of electricity production are hydroelectric, nuclear, and natural gas. And after that would come coal, and after that would be it's stupid to build wind and solar on the grid. <laughs> so, uh, last question from me. So, genetically modified organisms, or GMOs as they're called, uh, a lot of hysteria for a number of years, a number of decades, and now people are actually finding out that they are perfectly safe, uh, they solve a lot of uh, starvation issues around the world. Uh, do you think that will happen to the climate change hysteria we're having at the moment. So maybe in 10 or 20 years time, people will actually say, okay, yeah, CO2 is actually the, the bringer of life as opposed to the, to the uh, causing death. Yes. It's very clear now that the greening of the earth or what's also called global greening is well underway. Even NASA, which it's, which is heavily invested in the climate hysteria recognizes this and then they try to say well maybe it's not so good if the earth gets greener or maybe it's not so good if the agricultural yields go up by 20 percent as a result of the increased co2 you know and forest growth is increasing 40 percent in germany in 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 science-based uh research forests they're making these measurements it's the same thing is being has been measured in california and oregon in the united states and we know in Canada that our forests are growing faster now because of the CO2 fertilization effect, as it's called. We also know, and people are learning, that almost all greenhouse growers use additional CO2. They pump CO2 into the greenhouses to get 20 to 50 to even 80% additional growth. Tomato growers, for example, or maybe you call them tomatoes like the British, uh, they grow faster when you put CO2 into the greenhouse and in cold climates, they can just take the exhaust from their furnaces, whether it's wood or natural gas that they're burning to keep their greenhouse warm in the winter. They can just put the exhaust directly into the greenhouse and increase the CO2 level in there. This is done around the world. It's a matter of course in greenhouse farming, whereas you can't do this out in the open because the, the CO2 just disperses. But the fact of the matter is, the 40% increase in atmospheric CO2, which we are largely responsible for, 
has actually resulted in bringing a balance back to the carbon cycle. There was no balance of nature in the, the previous carbon cycle declining from 2,500 to 180 ppm over the last 150 million years. Our intervention, it's almost like Gaia is true and using humans, what other species could possibly have dug down into the deep ground and got the fossil fuels out and then used them for energy? You're not going to see horses doing that, like for example. And so humans did that. And as a result of humans bringing that carbon back into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide rather than as hydrocarbons formed from plant life and animal life from way back in the past, all of the carbon that we are putting into the atmosphere today came out of the atmosphere in the first place by plants sucking it out in the sea and on the land. And so we are restoring a balance to the carbon cycle. And in fact, you can find my paper if you Google Patrick Moore, carbon dioxide benefit of, etc. on the Internet. You can find my stuff there. And in that article, I explore the beneficial impact of human CO2 emissions on the survival of life on Earth. Because if we had not come along and started putting this carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere, it would have continued to decline through the next glaciation period to the, where it got to the point where plants all started dying on Earth. And then all life would start dying on Earth because all life depends on the plants, especially the forests. Well, on, the, on that note, uh, Dr. Moore, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, I'm sure what will probably be a controversial podcast, although it didn't feel like that while we were having the discussion. No, it felt like a, it felt like an uh, uh, academic lecture by a, a scientist who's like really, in, yeah, who really not, knowledgeable on, on, on the facts. Um, but, but really, uh, much appreciated. I know it's very early in the morning in, in Canada, um, so we, we, we really do appreciate you getting up and, and uh, having that early cup of coffee. Nice talking to you both. It's uh, been a pleasure. I hope to get back on with you again someday. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolute pleasure, Dr. Moore. Thank you once again, and uh, we will chat to you soon. Oh, by the way, are you on, on social media, on, on Twitter or Facebook by any chance? Yes. I, well, I, I try not to do Facebook because it's all about what you had for breakfast and what your dog looks like. But um, the uh, Guilty as charged. Yeah, my Twitter is e Ecosense now at Ecosense now, E C O S E N S E N O W. That's great, thank you. And uh, as, as I say, thanks so much for coming on. And um, yes, as you say, hopefully have you back sometime as well. Great, and I've actually managed to collect like fifteen thousand, nearly fifteen thousand followers on Twitter in just a few uh, years. So um, I'm having a good time there, and we talk about. <laughs> Talk about everything, all these issues and even a little politics now and again. Yeah, absolutely. Right, thanks so much for joining us. We're going to say goodbye now and uh, we'll, we'll chat to you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Right, Ramon. So uh, another one down. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, I like what he says, but I'm not a scientist. So I can't say like, yes, he's definitely right. It's just, it's just against it's, – it's, it's a complete inverse of what I hear every day. Yeah. In main, mainstream media, can I say the word mainstream media? Yeah. Well, I don't know. You you might get into trouble. Some some right. Some people get or, very upset or, when you say or, anything bad about the mainstream. Or the media. mainstream media could be spreading fake news yeah. by saying carbon is a problem. Funny thing that. 
Um, yeah, look, I, as you say, um, I, I know I understand a lot of what, what he said, but certainly um, there may be counter-arguments, but he gives a fair argument. He gives a reasonable argument. He does sure. give um, some background to his argument and some uh, what seems like good fact. Uh, so if you particularly offended by uh, Dr. Moore, you're welcome to suggest uh, other guests we could have on the show um, in this regard. Yeah, or you can email us at um, we don't care at renegadereport.com forward slash your mom. <laughs> and then actual addresses, uh, renegadereport mailbox at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at renegade underscore report. Uh, the other handles I'm sure you will have seen lots of lately, so we'll leave them out for the moment. We will catch you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Central.com.